0: And uh, we're talking about reasons to trust the Bible, so we, we, if we go through the five E's on resurrection and then somebody says, that's all great, those sound very convincing, which they should, uh, but you're drawing all of that from the Bible... And I don't accept the Bible. I believe that you know it's corrupt, that it's been translated so many times that we can't rely on it. These are very common objections. It's good to have a few arguments in favor of the validity of the Scriptures. And again, these arguments, just like the arguments for the resurrection, are not only good in our apologetics of toward nonbelievers and help us get a conversation going, they also help with our own faith, as uh, we think about why do I believe the things I, I do? You know, I, I, I'm a Christian because I believe Christ rose from the dead. That's why I'm a Christian, because I believe the empty tomb, the, the eyewitness accounts, the enduring transformation of the apostles, uh, the explanation of Old Testament prophecy those things do it for me. I've never heard a good argument against those things. Uh, and, you know, and if, if, if those arguments could be defeated, theoretically, we could say, yeah, then I would stop being a Christian. I, am, I have no concern that they're going to be defeated. But uh, theoretically, you can see how that's the case. Well, the same is true with regard to the validity of the Bible. And uh, when we talk about the doctrine of Scripture, as I mentioned last week, it, it, there, it's such a vast subject. I mean, really, we could spend weeks and weeks talking about canonicity talking about inspiration. Um, We're not going to spend all that much time on it. What I want to do is, once again, give you a small acrostic. Can everybody see that board? A little bit? Kind of? Okay, that was a convincing yes. Uh, uh, Just like the five E's are a helpful acrostic to remember, because, you know, when when these conversations arise... Um, you, you want to have things in your mind that you're able to draw upon. And uh, a lot of times, you know, those of us who have sat under faithful preaching for years and years and maybe even read some really great books, we might find it hard to get our thoughts together uh, in those moments. And so having an acrostic is what I, f- I find it easy to, uh, to remember. I use acrostics for all kinds of things, and, uh, and this one has helped me as well. So when we're talking about the validity of the Bible, uh, the first thing is, see, which we went over last week, Christ is the content. And again, try to put everything in the form of a question. So your uncle Bob, or Joe, uh, is an agnostic, and he's letting everybody at your family Thanksgiving dinner know that he's an agnostic, and he knows that you, being a Christian, will find some offense to this and uh, and so you say well uncle joe have you ever considered the empty tomb question mark have you ever considered the eyewitness accounts and then if then if it comes up with a bible or you have a friend maybe who's asking just an honest question well i just i don't really accept the bible well have you ever considered what the bible is about question mark always ask a question never use a statement when a question can do because a question puts the burden of proof back on the other person. And if you ask it in a nice tone, it really does appear that you are interested in what they are saying, which we should be. It helps us get out of them their beliefs so that we don't misrepresent what they believe. It also allows you a little time to think uh, while you're asking questions. And the first thing that that I would bring up is what the Bible is about. Most people don't know that. Have you ever considered that Christ is the content? The Bible is not this strange collection of uh, mysterious uh, stories, fairy tales, proverbs, letters, prophecies that uh, is jumbled up and maybe you get some moral principles from it. That's how most people think of the Bible. That's how the average person today thinks of the Bible. It's, yeah, it's got some good things in there, but can we really trust it all? They don't know that it's all connected in one Drama from Genesis to Revelation that's about one thing. The Bible is about one thing. Who can tell me what the Bible is about? Jesus Christ. Good? And, and how, in one sentence, what would you say? God's redemption, of his children. God's redemption of his children through Jesus Christ. That's it. The Bible is about God redeeming a people for himself through Jesus Christ. Guys, I promise you that over 90% of the people. With whom you will speak about these kind of apologetic questions, they haven't heard that before. And that's, you're actually bringing them good news. You're not, this isn't just to win an argument, you're actually sharing with them something really important for them. That the Bible is a a message about God rescuing sinners through Jesus Christ. And people don't realize that the Old Testament is all about that. That's why we preach the Old Testament here. We're going through 1 Samuel right now. We see how it all points to Jesus Christ. They're not just fairy tales with a, with a moral lesson. That's what most people think about David and Goliath or Jonah and the whale. And you know, Can we really believe that? But it's got a good moral lesson. Uh, no, it's all pointing us to Jesus, who himself believed that the Bible was authoritative, even the Old Testament. So Christ is the content is important. Remember those important passages that we went through last week? Uh, I won't go through them all again, but the main one that I will say is Genesis 3.15. Because really the whole Bible from, from verse 16 on all the way to the end of chapter 22 of the book of Revelation is expanding on that promise. It all begins there, just like any book you might, a novel you might read, or a movie you might watch that has a plot to it. That at the beginning the plot is set up. The same is the case with the Bible. Okay, next one is archaeological evidence, and there's tons of archaeological evidence that have confirmed the historicity and factuality of the Bible, because remember, the Bible is filled with names, dates, uh, places, uh, especially when you read things like the Gospel of Luke, and then Luke, Volume 2, the Book of Acts. Uh, Luke, being a physician, was very careful to document names, places, times. He says, who was reigning where, when? When? So that everything's cemented into history. Because Christianity is not a religion based on abstract truths or personal experiences. That's what most people think. But it's not based on that. What are you saying? Are you saying that, that I don't have a personal experience in Christianity? No, if you go back and you rewind, that's not what I said. I said it's not based on personal experiences and based on abstract principles. What is it based on? It's based on things that happened with actual people in actual places and times. If Jesus of Nazareth was not crucified one Friday afternoon outside Jerusalem and raised three days later walking out of a tomb, there is no Christianity. It's based on events. And so archaeological evidence has corroborated... And confirmed some of those events. And uh, the ones that I, few that I gave you uh, were the Dead Sea Scrolls, found in 1947, the Pilot Stone, uh, found by the Italian archaeological team in uh, 1961, and the Galio inscription, found in 1905, that helps us date the Book of Acts. Uh, So I I remember those by the little. side acrostic here, dig, since that's what archaeologists do, they dig. The main one, though, as I pointed out, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that will bring us into the next one, F, fulfilled prophecy. So we went over these two last week. And we could do, again, months just on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, They're really fascinating. I'll talk about them again here in a second. Uh, But fulfilled prophecy is the third area, an authenticating characteristic of Scripture. So the whole Bible is really a book of prophecy and fulfillment. And it all centers, as we talked about before, on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ promised in the old and fulfilled in the new. We see in the Gospels that people asked if Jesus was the Messiah, They did not inquire what the Messiah was because they expected a Messiah. There were so many prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament that they were all expecting him. Of course, there was a lot of misconceptions about the way in which the Messiah would accomplish his mission, but nevertheless, it shows that they believed in Old Testament prophecy. The Messianic prophecies are too many to number. Hundreds. Uh, some have estimated maybe 600 times that it's listed. I mean, there's even more than that. In, in one sense, you could probably go through all of the Bible. Um, I could probably find on e- just about every page of the Bible some reference to the person and work of Christ. It's not that hard. Not, uh, some people came up to me were talking about how hard it was to read through the book of Leviticus when they were doing the, uh, the Bible reading. And some even said, uh, confessed, or well, at least one person did that. They just bogged down and died there in Leviticus, and didn't go. And I get it; it's hard. You're reading about you know all those uh, those uh, uh, feasts and festivals and sacrifices, but they all point to Jesus. And w- one thing I uh, suggested to this person was: next time you read through Leviticus, uh, if you should resurrect your Bible reading, uh, go go to back to the beginning and. Uh, Every time that you read, shall make atonement, shall make atonement, underline it with a pen. And just underline. Try it through Leviticus. Shall make atonement. And then you'll see, wow, this thing's pointing towards something. It's talking about something that's fulfilled in Jesus. Leviticus is not boring. Commercials are boring. Leviticus is about how your sins have been dealt with and about how there's no more blood required. And so that's just one example of fulfilled prophecy. Every page of the Bible has something like that, some fulfilled prophecy. But here's just a few. The Messiah would be the seed of Abraham. Where do we know that? Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, Matthew 1.1. The Messiah would be the son of Isaac. Genesis 21, Matthew 1. The son of Jacob, Genesis 49, Numbers 24, Matthew 1. Of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, Matthew 1. Be of the lion of Jesse, Isaiah 11, Matthew 1. Be of the house of David, 2 Samuel 7, wait for it, Matthew 1, Acts 2. Why do I keep saying Matthew 1? Because that first chapter is connecting it to the Old Testament. And that's why for Gentile readers, a lot of times we open that up and We say, why are these long, oh, I hate genealogies. And so sometimes we'll say, read the Gospel of John, which is fine. I do the same thing. I suggest to someone who's never read the Bible before, start with John. Because you open up Matthew and you get this long genealogy, and if you don't know what that is about, you could easily get lost. Well, that's connected there because the Jews knew what that was about. It was about this. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, this time Matthew 2, Luke 2, John 7. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, Matthew 1. He would be preceded by a messenger, Malachi 3, and Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, John 1. He would come to Jerusalem riding on a colt, Zechariah 9, fulfilled in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, fulfilled in Matthew 26. He would have a betrayer who tries to return the 30 pieces of silver but is refused. The betrayer would then throw the pieces on the floor of the temple. Yes, that's in Zechariah 11. It was fulfilled in Matthew 27. He would not speak in his own defense. Isaiah 53. Matthew 26. Matthew 14. Luke 22. John 18. He would have his hands and his feet pierced. Psalm 22. Fulfilled of course in the Gospels. Again and again we see this evidence. And Uh, That's really important when we think about uh, Isaiah in particular. Isaiah is one place I always like to go. And you can can go to Isaiah 7 about the virgin birth, Isaiah 9 about uh, the the virgin birth as well, Uh, Isaiah 11 about how he'd be of the the tribe of Jesse. Uh, But my favorite, of course, is Isaiah 53, um, which so clearly... Uh, describes the crucifixion of Jesus so clearly that skeptics before the 1940s, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, it was common for people to say, well, the text of Isaiah must be corrupt because uh, that must be written back into uh, the text by the Masoretic scribes, which, again, your average person, if they don't realize what they're even saying, you know, the Masoretic scribes of the 5th and 6th century, which up until this point were the, the earliest manuscripts that we had of Isaiah, which admittedly are 500 years or so after the time of Christ. Nevertheless, those scribes have nothing to gain by, putting, by trying to read Christianity back into Isaiah because they're Jewish. A um, little fact that sometimes people overlook uh, it just seems more interesting to say that maybe the Vatican corrupted all of this in the first few centuries, and they're hiding the true manuscripts from us. They're somewhere locked in some vault in the Vatican that only the Pope and Dan Brown have access to. And, uh, but what the Dead Sea Scrolls did was they had complete manuscripts of the book of Isaiah that dated about uh, 150 or so, B.C. And as I pointed out last week, uh, they're identical with the Masoretic, the Masoretic text, which was five sixth 6th century A.D. And that's astounding. That's astounding when you think about it. These are the days before computers. They copied the text so perfectly, so well, and so systematically, so carefully, that, and they did it, in, it with, in, a, in a way that was above reproach. Again, it's not one guy passing it on to one guy to one guy like the telephone game, but you have a room full of people checked then by someone who oversees that work, and you, then you end up with whole families of these manuscripts that can be compared and contrasted against each other. But to see that those manuscripts from the fifth and sixth century were identical to the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls uh, shows not only the the quality of the work of the scribes, but also the fact that the text has not been corrupted. And you know, when you see things like that, and then people still refuse to believe, that's when you realize that you're not dealing with an intellectual problem here. And you have to always keep that in mind as you're talking with somebody, because you can get frustrated. You know, I gave them all my arguments. Right, and all your arguments just wouldn't penetrate that sinful heart. It's amazing how that works. Ah, who do we need? I know, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and it's the truth. It's the truth. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit will use our uh, sort of pre-evangelism and can use some of these things. It kind of move some obstacles out of the way. And you never know how the Lord's going to use it. When you begin bringing these things up, or like the empty tomb before... I, like I tell our young people when I take them through our apologetics course, even if you only say a couple things, have you ever considered the empty tomb? Have you ever considered the, the eyewitnesses, the 500? Have you ever considered their transformation to death? You know, no, I didn't. I don't believe any of that horse-pucky. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, and then, oh, okay, I'm sorry. You know, Will you still be my friend? And, uh, and I tell the young people, I say, but do you realize what you did? You put a rock in their shoe. You got them to, you put something that is going to bug them for a long time, and now you begin to pray that the Holy Spirit will make that rock bigger. And, and I mean, think about how the Lord brought you to faith. You know, for many of us, it was a series of people, and it was over a long period of time. And, you know, the, as Paul says, one plants and other waters, but God gives the increase. And so that should give us a lot of courage and a lot of encouragement uh, as we go to uh, talk about these things. Anyway, fulfilled prophecy is a big one. There's also, you know, many places where the Bible, for example, in Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, and other places in Daniel, talks about the rise of empire, the rise and fall of world empires. So when Daniel is shipped off to Babylon. Babylon was the world empire at that time, okay? Most powerful country in the world, dominates everything. Babylon then falls to whom? Anybody remember? To the Medes and the Persians, the Persian empire, okay? And so then you have uh, King Darius, uh, he's, the, he's a Mede, and he's not, um, he's not Babylonian. So Daniel's time actually sees the fall of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Medes. Medo-Persian Empire falls to whom? To Greece. Greece rules for a long time. Then Greece falls to whom? To Rome. It's good for us as Americans because we think the world started with George Washington. And, uh, you know, we have to remember that, you know, we're just a blip on the screen. We just think we're important is the thing. Uh, but when you study world history, you see that the world's been around a long, long time. And there were countries that ruled a lot longer. This is where trips to Europe actually do you good. You go, you go uh, stay in a house that is older than the United States of America. Our first house in Germany was 400 years old. That was weird. You know, you're in a house 400 years old. It wasn't built very well, but uh, they did their best, right? Uh, but the point is, is that you, you have prophecies of rise and fall of world empires in Daniel before it happens. You have prophecies about, the, uh, about Israel staying in, in, uh, uh, in Babylon for 70 years, and then coming back, and it happens. And so again and again, we see fulfilled prophecy. Uh, this is just another one of the things that we can say um, that causes us to trust the Bible. A big one in the New Testament is the fall of Jerusalem. Again, these are things sometimes that we don't appreciate uh, because we're not very good at at history. But uh, Jerusalem was a big city. It had a very huge, impressive temple. And uh, Jesus said that that thing would be flattened and that Jerusalem would fall. He says that in Matthew 24. And uh, he prophesies the, the invasion of Rome. And sure enough, in AD 70, General Titus came and invaded uh, Jerusalem, putting down the Jewish revolt, and razed the, the temple and destroyed most of the wall in the city. And so fulfilled prophecy is another thing that stands out as an authenticating quality of Scripture. Uh, They're not just fairy tales, in other words. All right, now the big one, I think this is the biggest, and then I think the second biggest is this. I mean, this is good too, and this kind of. They're all good. Uh, Somebody posted a picture of someone reading Romans for the first time with a highlighter. Uh, Did you see that? And the entire page was just a highlight. You know, I thought that was funny. Uh, extant manuscripts. MSS, you might see it sometime in your margin if you have a study bible um, that stands for manuscripts. If you have one of those study bibles with things like LXX the Septuagint or MT the Masoretic Text um, I want to encourage you to learn what those mean. You bought that study bible okay, and they, it's big and heavy um, so now's the time to use it and learn what all those little symbols and little things mean. Uh, because it will actually increase your faith. It will increase your faith. You have every reason to trust the word of God. As I always tell people, all the answers are there. It, Christianity hides nothing. It's go and find the answers. It's right there for you. And uh, with studying the Bible, you can find out also about manuscripts uh, as well. All right, the Manuscripts. We don't possess original copies of the books of the Bible, which we call autographs, okay? Uh, the originals are not around. Why do you think God made sure that the originals are not around? Yeah, and do, is there, is there, have God's people ever worshipped something from the past? Absolutely. You know, think of, think of uh, how they worshipped the ephod and worshipped the, the serpent that Moses raised and you know, all of these times of idolatry, and then just look at all the uh, superstition and idolatry of the Middle Ages, right? So it's a good thing we don't have the autographs. Um, Again, your skeptic will say, well, then, I don't have to believe the Bible. Okay, well, hold on. The Old Testament, we know, has come to us, as I said, through the meticulous care of scribes who copied the original text in successive generations, so that by the 5th or 6th century A.D., the scribes were succeeded by a group known as the Masoretes, continued to preserve the sacred scriptures for another 500 years in a form known as the Masoretic Text. Then you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date 200 to 150 B.C., add to our assurance that we have the same Hebrew canon to which Christ himself referred. Then we get to the New Testament, and here's where it gets really good. When we, when we think about the, the New Testament... Manuscripts. There are two things that I like to remember. Quantity and quality. Quantity and quality. So again, a manuscript is a copy of an autograph. Autograph is, you know, the the actual uh, letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. And... uh, a manuscript is a copy of that autograph. And how do we know that those manuscripts that we have are reliable? And how many manuscripts are there? You know, ancient manuscripts from the first few centuries. How many do we have? Two? Three? Five? Yeah, there are over five thousand man, Greek manuscripts from the first few centuries. Over five thousand Greek manuscripts, five to six, really, and over six thousand of the Latin Vulgate, because the Bible was translated into Latin. Um, you know, it, it with uh, Jerome, and as the Middle Ages begin. And they are translations of the Greek, um, and then you've got another thousand or so other Latin manuscripts that weren't the Vulgate. But the point is, is that you've got over twelve thousand manuscripts from antiquity. There is no book, uh, fiction, uh, prose or poetry, fiction or nonfiction, with that many manuscripts. Not even nothing even close there's some with a few hundred, then that, that's considered incredibly credible, if I can use those two terms together. Uh, that's a credible witness, an, an excellent witness for uh, the authenticity of uh, a manuscript and its accuracy to the original. But 12,000? Now, the reason why that that's so helpful, as I pointed out before, is that it's easy to corroborate then. If you've got manuscripts all contradicting each other, yeah, then you've got telephone game going on. But when they don't, it shows that you can match up what was originally there. And I like to use the example of a, of a ruler. You know, If you have a 12-inch ruler, how do you know that the ruler you have in your home is actually 12 inches? I mean, you don't have the original, right? You don't have the autograph. How do you know? How do you know... The- How do you know the Vatican didn't just, you know, isn't playing a trick on us? And we really don't have true 12 inches. Maybe it's a little more or a little less, right? Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, all we got to do is all match up our rulers, and they're all the same. And in a microscope, we see they're all the same. Well, it's the same thing with regard to the manuscripts. Uh, Yeah, you will have what's called textual variance, okay? And that's why if you have your study Bible... You will find sometimes uh, textual variants. You know sometimes in the New Testament you'll see a little mark on the margin, and it might say "In you," which stands for nesley Allant and United Bible Society's manuscripts, and it will give it'll say, well, the in you manuscripts read differently. Um, th- this is why, for example, I don't use the the King James. I think the King James is very poetic and nice and all that, but it comes from a, a later manuscript, not an older manuscript. And, the, and uh, we have since found so many manuscripts uh, that are more reliable than the King James. And when you compare uh, the textual variants from the manuscripts of the King, what the King James is based on to the manuscripts that the NASB, the ESV, even the NIV is based on, um, you will find that the scribes at times would add little things to try to smooth out the language. No doctrine has changed. There is absolutely no place where doctrine has changed. But you will find little additions here and there in words that the, the medieval scribes used to try to bring clarity. Okay. Uh, so, for example, in, um, in James, this is just one that comes off the top of my head, in the book of James, if I can remember the passage here, uh, where it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Um, the, the word there is he, not God. And but you don't want it to be confusing uh, to the reader. And so, what you'll have sometimes with the scribes is that they would say, "Well, we know who James is talking about there. He's talking about God, not the person being tempted. And so they'll smooth out the word you know, rather than He and the right God." And they would sometimes, in the, mar- in the margin of their manuscript, make a little notation. OK, well, these become the family of manuscripts that the, the King James is based on. When we found more reliable manuscripts, you see that, yeah, the more difficult reading that was smoothed out is, without question, the more reliable reading, because why would a scribe make something more difficult to read? He'd make it more easy to read. And so we go to the earlier manuscripts uh, for something we believe is a little closer. But all that aside, just consider this for uh, a minute. There are more than 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 6,000 manuscripts of the, of the Vulgate, 1,000 are Latin translations. Yes, no original manuscript, autograph of the New Testament has survived. What we have instead are copies, everything from scraps of papyri that contain only a few verses. OK? They go back to Some go back to the uh, first and second century. They contain parts from 10 epistles of Paul to codexes, which were a form of a book written on both sides in book form, that are complete copies of the entire New Testament. But these copies date from as early as the 2nd century. Now that's remarkable, because it's a much closer time period to the autograph than any of the great secular books. In other words, this is what I mean by quality. From the time that Paul writes Romans... To the time that we have a manuscript, okay, that period from the original to the copy is shorter than any period of any other book in secular history. For example, we can get as close to 1,000 years in Caesar's Gallic War. That is, from, that is one of the oldest surviving copies to the original. The writings of the Greek historian Herodotus over 1,300 years. Roman historian Tacitus, about 700 years. But in the case of the New Testament, we have whole copies of all 27 books less than 200 years. There's no other book like that with that kind of quality from antiquity. So we have more, and we have better manuscripts. There are only 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, which is one of the most famous books of ancient Greece. Again, New Testament, over 12,000. So the the, uh, the quality, along with the quality, show that the Bible is something that can be believed. In addition to New Testament, manuscripts there are over 86,000, get this, early patristic quotations from the New Testament. Early patristic means the, the early church fathers. So... Uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, uh, Augustine, uh, people quoting the New Testament. There are over 86,000 quotations from the New Testament and several thousand lectionaries, these early church service books that contain selected scripture readings, uh, dating to the first few centuries of the church. In fact, there are enough quotations from the early church fathers that even if we did not contain a single copy of the Bible, we could still reconstruct the entire New Testament. So, the, I mean, the evidence is, like, it's overwhelming. There's no reason not to believe this. The, in terms of the quantity and the quality. And the, I'm just giving you a, this. We're just skimming this. It doesn't, it's really not an intellectual issue. If a person has a problem with the Bible, they have a problem with God. If they have a problem with the Old Testament, with talk, talking donkeys and fish that swallow men, and a parting of Red Sea, then they have a problem with Jesus because Jesus believed those things. And if we don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, our only other options was that he was crazy or he was a liar because he said he would be raised from the dead. I mean, those are are the options on the table. We either receive this for what it is and submit to it, or we don't. But see, that's the issue that's the issue. We don't want to submit. We don't want to bring ourselves to a point of having to obey what God says. All right, I'll end there, and uh, if you want to to study more about this, um, what I'll do is I'll make a list of uh, some resources, and uh, you can shoot me an email, and I'll Be happy to send that out to you. Uh, There's some great books that you can read on both the resurrection and on uh, the authenticity of Scripture, and also other other areas like canonicity and uh, textual criticism. If you have any questions, I'll, I'll stick around afterward. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time to discuss these important matters. And Lord, we thank you that your Word remains. Your truth that is revealed for us and remains a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We pray that you would, as Jesus prayed in his great high priestly prayer, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.